begin. Welcome to Mass Ave. We are here bringing you conservative news, policy, and insight from the steps of Capitol Hill. I'm your host, Emily Vanderbush. And I'm Tommy Binion. Welcome to the show today. We are talking about the future of the conservative movement. Gazing into our crystal ball with the help of Tim Chapman from Heritage Action. Very exciting episode on the horizon. Yeah, a very relevant topic. We have a lot of issues in the news that everyone says the future of the conservative movement is kind of at stake with. Um, Yeah, well, I don't know if you know this, but a year ago, something dramatic happened. Right. Um, President Trump was elected president. And uh, that is a uh, obviously that's historic. That's an understatement. Um, it is a it, it's a um, sort of a pivotal moment uh, in the uh, arc of history of this movement of ours. And so um, we're going to take a look at what that means and and where we're going. Yeah. Uh, in the meantime, another busy week on Capitol Hill. Tommy, uh, give us a little bit of what, what's going on. Busy is an understatement. Yeah. Uh, on the House floor, they're going to be voting on the National Defense Authorization Bill. This is a, a conference report that has come mm-hmm. out, uh, meaning uh, conferees from both chambers have agreed to this. Uh, an earlier version passed the House, and a separate version passed the Senate, and now this is the combined version. Um, it, 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 it makes a, a big step forward to rebuilding America's military, which is what the president promised he would do in the form of um, a dramatic increase in in defense spending, uh, authorized, not appropriated quite yet. Uh, they'll vote on that in the House. Uh, they'll vote on an authorization for the National Flood Insurance Program, uh, which, considering the damage the hurricanes earlier this fall did, is a big deal. And uh, they're going to vote on the tax plan. Oh, man. Um, so uh, it, that's no small vote either. Yeah. Uh, it, there won't be any floor amendments. Uh, it'll just be an up and down vote by the time it gets to the floor. But uh, this, this first and very pivotal vote on the tax reform bill will be a big deal. Uh, I think it'll pass. Hopefully, it'll pass. It'll 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 then be the Senate's turn to to advance their bill, and then they'll either um, they'll resolve the differences between the two bills either in a conference or by the House taking up the Senate bill. But um, if you're a fan of tax reform like we are here on Mass Ave, this is a big week. The Senate bill um, is in committee on uh, in the Senate Finance Committee, so it's it's a separate bill moving through the Senate process, and uh, there's a lot to sink your teeth into. Uh, if you're a real tax nerd, there's a there's a there's you know thousands and thousands of pages of analysis of this bill, um, and so it's exciting times. Um, on the other end of this, of course, we think there's explosive economic growth. We think this is really important legislation, um, and it's all happening um, starting this week and, and going all the way till about Christmas time. Uh, by the way, before Christmas, we've we've still got to do um, a spending bill. Right. We've still got to do the debt ceiling. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is um, there. Uh, there's a lot of football left to be played, as they say. Yeah. So tell me a little about the debt ceiling. What is it going to be? An easy process, or is it as always down to the wire? You know, I can't predict. Yeah. Uh, I would just remind the audience how this went the first time around. Remember um, the president and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and um, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell were all in the Oval Office. And it turns out the president struck a deal with the Democrats um, to do this short-term extension that expired December the 8th. So whether or not he goes back for another deal with the Democrats or maybe the Republicans have a, um, a set of fiscal reforms they want enacted... Are the Democrats going to make um, DACA, the, the, the um, 
President Obama's unconstitutional illegal amnesty for certain folks? Are, are they going to make that an issue in the spending bill? Are they going to try to shut down the government? Um, boy, this is going to be a fun, uh, a fun and exciting December. Yeah, such a short window of time, but a lot to do. Stay tuned to Mass Ave for for uh, for coverage of all the unfolding drama as uh, as as we pay attention to every detail. Exactly. And now a word from our friends at SCOTUS 101. Hi, I'm Tiffany Bates. And I'm Elizabeth Slattery. If you like listening to Mass Ave, we encourage you to check out our Heritage Foundation podcast called SCOTUS 101. On SCOTUS 101, Tiffany and I break down what's going on at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. We also play trivia. Check out SCOTUS 101 on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts today. Joining us today on Mass Ave is Tim Chapman, COO of um, Heritage Action for America. Tim uh, has has been with Heritage Action since the beginning, and before that was uh, Chief of Staff to Dr. Fulner, the, the president of the Heritage Foundation. Tim spends a lot of time with members of Congress and senators and their staff thinking about policy issues, and, and, um, and he also has a real keen awareness of the broader picture of the conservative movement and how it relates to the rest of the country. That's a rare quality here in Washington, is, is somebody who can think about people outside the Beltway, and, and Tim's one of the best at that. So, Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tommy. Happy to be here. So, a year ago, or a year and four days ago, uh, President Donald J. Trump was elected president uh, to the surprise of, of everybody who lives in this zip code, uh, and it's it certainly changed things quite a bit. Look back on that day and, and what that has meant for uh, conservatives in Washington, Republicans in Washington, and, and, and how's the last year gone in, in those terms? Well, it really was shocking for so many of us. Um, but, you know, when you started to peel back the onion a little bit, and in hindsight, you could see that there were a lot of indicators that this was uh, something big was coming. Uh, and you had, you know, you go all the way back to 2010, you go back to the Tea Party wave in 2010 and, and think about what happened there. That was, of course, following the 2008 market crashes and uh, the 2008 market crashes happened, you know, towards the end of the Bush administration time. And, um, and even in that decade, the the early the first decade of the 2000s, you started to see a lot of fracturing um, in terms of our, our body politic and in terms of what people actually felt about Washington and um, and what was going on here. And we here at the Heritage Foundation actually started to um, – there were some indicators for us too. I mean if you think back to the mid-2000s, we, we started experiencing exponential growth in our membership. Um, and I remember being here then um, and saying, wow, there are all these people who are starting to donate to the Heritage Foundation or become members of the Heritage Foundation. And we started to you know, ask people, what's, what's bringing you in? And people were leaving uh, the Republican Party in droves. And what they were doing is they were taking the you know small donations that they might give to a, 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 a the NRSC or uh, to the NRCC or some sort of pol- political committee, and they were bringing it to Heritage, and they were kind of leaving the party establishment. Um, and so this was happening. This has been. The Trump election in 2016 has been happening now for probably 16 years, you could argue. Um, You you really can look back to uh, when Bush first came into office and there was a kind of core uh, populist conservative uh, base that was excited about what may happen but really was appalled over the course of those eight years and then even more and more frustrated during the Obama years. Um, and that kind of just bubbled up and, uh, and we had 2016. And so for us, I think as conservatives now, it's a, um, we've got to try to figure out what that means in terms of governing. 
um, and what that means. How can we contribute to a national conversation um, and put a positive conservative reform agenda across the finish line? And I think that's where actually, you know, we've actually. Trump has had a challenge. <laughs> he's done a he's done a fantastic job of shaking up Washington. That's one of the things that he was elected to do is to come here and kind of be a a bull in the China shop um, and to to break a lot of a lot of China. But the flip side to that is you also then have to implement a policy agenda, um, and you have to do it in a way. Um, that garners support behind uh, your movement. And I think right now we're at this you know, critical nexus uh, where are we going to be able to um, not just shake up Washington, but are we going to be able to consolidate this new governing majority, which, I, which when you look at it, this, this governing majority is conservatives, it's populists, it's independents, it's average Americans across the country who have felt like they've been left behind and done a disservice by this, by this uh, government and by the prevailing trends of globalization and um, all sorts of huge tectonic plates that are shifting underneath our feet politically. And so can we put that governing agenda together? And I think that's where we're at right now. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good synopsis of sort of the fracture um, as it has happened over the last decade or, or decade and a half. Um, and, and, and you gave a, a good idea of sort of where this is going, is can we capitalize on that fracture? Can we realign our politics uh, to take advantage of it and, and, and to enact some good policy along the way? I think two important questions would be, who you know, you, you've described this group of people that has sort of fractured and, and made their voice heard, and, and, it, and it's a growing chorus. It was starting in the Bush years, and then the Tea Party, and now sort of the Trump voter. Um, Who's in that camp? And I think we can look to the states that President Trump won, that other Republicans had lost to help right. us identify that. And then and the second is, what issues do they care about? What's right. driving them? Right. So we have to acknowledge as conservatives that our governing coalition right now is not the same governing coalition that Reagan had in the 80s. Um, and when, and as you said, Tommy, when you look at the states that, that Trump won, you look at Wisconsin, you look at Pennsylvania, states like that, um, where you have a, a lot of kind of uh, – some of them could be considered actually Reagan Democrats in a sense, but it's, it's, it's more nuanced than that at this point. Um, trade was a huge issue for them. Um, bread and butter issues at the, at the kitchen table, um, things that uh, we need to start looking at in terms of kind of um, you know, massive – Automation in in the workforce, right, is happening, and people's jobs are kind of the being robots out. are coming. Yeah, the robots are taking <laughs> over. Like, what can we do as conservatives uh, to actually speak to the concerns that these people are having? Um, and so, I think we have had to kind of recalibrate a little bit. So, you know, for example, we um, we, we've introduced a uh, piece of legislation uh, just last week uh, on the Hill. We worked with uh, some of our allies on the Hill to get. A piece of legislation introduced called the Higher Education Reform and Opportunity Act, um, and Hero Act is uh, is a piece of legislation that would say, "Look, there's federal funds out there right now that we spend." By the way, we as conservatives don't really like this, right? These are federal funds that we spend a lot of federal funds for students to get financial aid for four-year liberal arts schools. Um, so, what we're doing with this piece of legislation is to say, "Hey, like, let's take some of those funds and let's." allow them to follow the student rather than to just keep going to these four-year liberal arts schools. And it kind of is an attack on the kind of big cartel of big academia, <laughs> you know, that has for years and years 
um, just bloated itself on federal funds that are following these students into these institutions. And students are finding themselves graduating from these institutions with uh, little more to show than, you know, massive amounts of debt and um, and some good memories. And um, and that's just not a uh, that's not a sustainable path. So what we want to do is we want to take those federal funds. We want to say, look, if you don't want to go to one of these four year liberal arts schools, you can go. You can go get a credit, get, go get a training uh, certificate from Boeing if you want to become an engineer, or if you want to work for Microsoft and and you want to uh, and you want to uh, do some uh, some of their programming, go get a pro- take a programming class and and follow and the funds will follow you. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to inject competition into the higher education marketplace. Um, but to my point earlier. The whole entire idea of federal funds kind of flowing to this is not necessarily a conservative idea. Uh, but we have to acknowledge where we are as, as a movement and where we are in the country, and we have to find ways to um, make our policies relevant and our principles relevant. And our principle here is one of choice, choice and competition. And we think over time, because you inject choice and competition into the system, federal funds outlays will actually go down. The price of college tuition will actually go down if you're not funneling all of this money into these four-year liberal arts schools. Yeah, I think what you're talking about, Tim, is is a is a a policy future that's a lot more responsive to individuals than it is to. Uh, lobbied interest here in right. Washington. So yep. by that, I mean the big schools, yep. big academia, they have lobbyists here who they show up every year looking for looking for federal dollars. And what gets left behind are, are folks who may be interested in something other than a four-year degree at one of these big schools. Right. Uh, I don't want to use the cliche, drain the swamp, but, but I'm going to. Uh, actually, I do want to use it. It's one of my favorites. Um, that is one thing we know for sure about this group of, of you know conservatives that, that are out there beyond the beltway is that current politicians have failed them right. and the current system is not responsive to them and that they responded to the message drain the swamp which to them means yeah all, all of this stuff that's going on in Washington with with our policies only being responsive to the lobbied interest in Washington has got to stop yep uh, and the hero act is a great example of that but there are there are many others. Um, but in, but uh, before you move on from draining the swamp, just on that idea, I think this is where we as conservatives um, have an obligation to fill out um, what that really ultimately means. So draining the swamp is a great, you know, it's a it's a catchy phrase and, and it's a great rallying cry. And we all in our guts know that this place actually does need to be drained. But so how do you do it as uh, how do you do it um, in terms of a policy program? Well, here's a chance for us as conservatives to recapture something that we used to believe in, and that's federalism. Right. And, you know, our republic is it is a republic. It, it is not a it's not a democracy. It's a republic. And and it, you're we are supposed to have power devolved down to uh, the lowest possible level. So if you really want to drain the swamp, we as conservatives need to help the Trump administration really come up with a program to send power to the states. And so, you know, when we were just talking about the Higher Education Reform and Opportunity Act, there's a there's a federalism principle there too, because right now, all the accrediting is done at, at the federal level, um, and we're saying let's let states opt out of those that set of accrediting rules, and then have South Carolina be able to uh, come up with a different way to accredit different 
programs in higher education. Um, and, and that will be good for South Carolinians because South Carolina knows what its economy needs and New York knows what its economy needs. Um, and so we need to be thinking really creatively about how to do this. We were trying to do this in the healthcare debate. You know, that was a, a, a total disaster in many ways. But the, but the one big principle that we were fighting for as conservatives in that healthcare debate was to allow states to opt out of the federal regulations that Obamacare put in place because we thought that the best way to get to 218 in the House, even though the House and the Senate have lots of differing opinions when it comes to Republicans about how things should be done, Chris Collins should be able to go home to New York and say, you know what, uh, you know, New York's going to keep a lot of the uh, of the lot of the Obamacare regulations, but you know what. Louis Gohmert should be able to go home and say, you know what? We got Texas the ability to opt out of every single regulation that the federal government put in place. And then we can have a conversation as conservatives five years from now and say, all right, who's getting better health care and better prices? Is it Texas or is it New York? And let's figure out why. And looking more to the conservative movement from here, I know that a lot of our listeners might be hearing from people after last week's election results that um, – because the Democrats won or because more liberal ideas won that Americans are now turning and rejecting conservative ideas. What would you say is the answer to that? And do you agree with that kind of an assessment? Well, I think it's a major problem. I think people I, I think we have to uh, recognize that the electorate is incredibly volatile right now. Um, and they're volatile because people are upset and fed up with Washington. And this is what I'm talking about, you know, in terms of can we get to a place where, where the Trump administration is not just a bull in a china shop? The Trump administration is the spearhead for a real reform agenda. Um, that is what this administration needs if it's going to sustain governing majorities. That's what this Congress needs if it's going to sustain governing majorities. And the, and the results of last week's elections I think are in no small part um, – you know, kind of a, a reaction against, uh, you know, th this Congress's inability so far and this administration's inability so far to fulfill some of the promises that were made um, in the 2016 campaign. And so the health care debate, you know, being a failure was a huge problem um, that that really sapped the um, energy out of the conservative populist base. Um, there's plenty of energy in the in the liberal populist base right now because of their kind of disdain for Trump. Um, but that's really what's driving that more than anything else is it's kind of a, it's a politics of negativity um, and, a, and a politics of disdain for one man. Um, but we need to be able to uh, keep our coalition together, keep the momentum behind our coalition. And the only way you can do that is accomplishing things. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, the media covers this as if it's a beauty pageant or a horse race, and, and the American people are the judges, and they're constantly changing their minds. You know, around the dinner table, uh, people don't change their opinions that rapidly. They're, they're, they're responding to the way that politicians or political parties have either responded to their needs or, or disappointed them. I, I think what's true is that the things that they want out of Washington um, stay the same. Right. And, uh, and and maybe their disappointment in one party or another changes. But you, you've done a nice job today articulating what those what those folks want. Any any um, final thoughts as we wrap up here in terms of uh, what the next year looks like and what the rest of um, President Trump's first term in office looks like and what 2020 looks like? Yeah, I think we are uh, right now we're 
on the precipice of either turning a corner or total disaster. <laughs> and uh, I mean, let's just be honest about it. This is a bold it. prediction. Yeah, we are. The, if the tax reform bill goes down, I think you lose all momentum. Okay. And I think the tax reform bill going down means you lose the midterm elections. I think it means you put the administration in a really tough spot. Um, it going into their, the last two years of their first term because the, the Congress is uh, going to be controlled by Democrats. And so I think a lot of this hinges on getting this tax reform bill across the finish line over the next couple of weeks to months. Um, now, if we're able to push that across the finish line, I think there's an opportunity to say, OK, we got a little momentum here. Um, and there's uh, and that's when you have to start pushing that reform agenda. Okay, so there's going to be a, um, a higher education reauthorization bill next next year. Um, that's an opportunity for Republicans to talk about an issue that's a bread and butter issue for the American people. Let's work there. There's going to be a farm bill next year. There's going to be potentially an infrastructure bill. That's an opportunity for conservatives to say, hey, we've taken the same approach to infrastructure for too long. Let's try to inject some principles of federalism into this debate. Um, and let's try to, um, while we're talking about infrastructure, reinvigorate the idea of work and the nobility of work. And I think that's one of the things that we've been talking about here at Heritage a lot through welfare reform and through the higher education bill that we've been talking about. So if you can get a little momentum here, I can see how next year becomes a positive year going into the midterm elections. Um, and But you really got to do this in a way that you're recognizing who put you in office in the first place. And we're not just passing this. We're not just promoting the same pieces of legislation we've been promoting for 40 years. We got to do some things that are innovative and um, and meet people where they are right now. All right. Well, we can leave it there and keep an eye on what comes up in the coming months. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Tim. All right. We're going to go now to the ever popular Jenny Maltabano with the ever popular Ask the Expert segment. She's got our Arthur Millick today. Uh, interested to, to hear this conversation. We're here with Arthur Millick. He is the Associate Director for the B. Kenneth Simon Center for Principles and Politics here at Heritage. Arthur, thank you so much for being here with us. You recently were on a panel for an event we had for our Preserve the Constitution series, and it was called The State of the Press Today, Whose Interest Does It Serve? I was thinking we could start by you explaining the original meaning of freedom of the press that the founders intended. Sure, I'm happy to. Um, it is important to figure out whose interest the press actually serves. Does it serve republicanism? Does it try to bolster it and safeguard it? Or does it have its own interests, its own interests as a class, its own ideological interests, and whether it serves those interests as opposed to the interests of republicanism? So the founders had worked out a very clear understanding of both the good and the bad that comes from the press. The good they saw comes in two forms. First is science. They thought that the freedom of the press was absolutely necessary for the, pra uh, for the progress of the sciences. And Descartes, the originator of modern natural science, gives this example. He says that in the past, there were two kinds of scientists. The first kind had real discoveries, but out of pride, wanted to keep those discoveries a secret. And then there were the false scientists who peddled false sciences in order to gain a power over the public. So Descartes solves this problem of not being able to get real and good science from uh, uh, those that possess it and getting rid of the false sciences. And he thinks that the freedom of the press is crucial to that because this is what the freedom of the press does. It says, give us your secrets. In exchange, we'll give you money and fame and honor. 
But we'll take those secrets and we'll give them to other scientists. And we'll ask those scientists to replicate your findings. And if they can, then you'll get the promises. And if they can't, you will be pushed aside as a huckster and become irrelevant. So when the Constitution says that Congress shall not abridge the freedom of the press, it doesn't just refer to uh, journalists, as we like to call them today, as they think of themselves as being kind of central figures in the Constitution. They're not. The freedom of the press deals with sciences first and foremost. The second way that the, that, um, the freedom of the press was meant to work was that just like in the sciences, the freedom of the press would be a kind of attack dog against false science, against false dogma. Similarly, in politics, the freedom of the press would serve as a kind of attack dog, attacking false dogmas, anti-republican dogmas that advocated for monarchy, tyranny, slavery. The press would... Uh, take those doctrines and dissect them and destroy their popularity and their pull over the public. And it's in this second way, and as a sub-point of what I just said, that journalists come into play. Again, they're a small part of what the freedom of the press means. What they would do is they would attack corruption, abuses in government, expose them before the people's eyes, generate public anger against those abuses so that they could be remedied. And you see in a lot of countries where the freedom of the press doesn't work how many abuses there are and how tyrants relentlessly try to crack down on journalists so as to prevent them exposing their crimes in the light. So those, I think, are the two main uh, reasons why the founders thought that the freedom of the press was a good thing. So right now we live in an age where we hear the term fake news every day. We're constantly surrounded by it. Keeping that in mind and the challenges that it's um, created for the press, for the media, for the administration, how do you think a healthy press should function in today's society in that kind of an environment? Well, look, the press has no right to publish things that they know are false. Uh, they know that, and so therefore there's this kind of new intermediate ground where they publish things and pretend like they are not knowingly false. So, for instance, um, Basically, the press took it upon themselves to try and steal the election, the past presidential election. I uh, have never witnessed such a thing that the press had unified together so as to try to prevent the will of the public from coming into being in an election. Um, they do that. They also, uh, if you notice during the 2016 election, they were constantly peddling false accusations uh, to cultivate hatred. They were constantly avoiding covering stories that they knew didn't benefit their prejudices or their interests. They constantly published false data. Almost all of the polls turned out to be wrong um, on the presidential election. Um, okay, polls can be wrong, but why send this kind of false information uh, into the public? Uh, the point is, I think, to try and prejudice the public, to try and give the public the image that the election is hopeless, no matter what your desires are. Look, I'm not saying that they did this consciously and there was a conspiracy. I'm not at all saying that. But it is clear that there was a kind of active desire to, um, if not take the election away from the public and therefore not necessarily to choose the president for the public, at least to serve as a kingmaker for the public. And how do you think we best counteract fake news per se? It, does it start at the universities where they're always trying to push a certain narrative that at times is false? Where do you see that process starting? 
Look, a lot of intelligent people uh, have thought about this, and um, I uh, agree with a lot of them, but I just want to add one thing. Um, I think that the power of ridicule and satire is uh, underused, uh, but is an immensely powerful tool in minimizing the influence of the press. So my favorite founder, Ben Franklin, this, is, this was his approach. He wrote a lot of satirical pieces ridiculing the press. And we do this to a lot of industries or professions today. There are relentless movies that expose, or claim anyways, to expose corruption in the church, or in sports, or in big pharma. Where are the movies that look at the press carefully examine their prejudices, show that often these are interested, not particularly well-educated people who have uh, a disproportionate power over the public mind. I just want to go through very quickly uh, Benjamin Franklin's uh, analysis of the press because uh, I want to show how crystal clear his thinking was and how he just like Tocqueville and a lot of the other founders, saw that the freedom of the press uh, is uh, one coin with two sides. It has the good, which is the one that I summarized before, and then it comes with an ill. And this ill is not just something that we experience today and that conservatives shout about, but it's a kind of ill that is built in to the nature of the freedom of the press. And if you don't mind, I'll go through some of his uh, arguments. Ben Franklin uh, spent his life, in a way, in the press. He became a millionaire, became world famous through publishing. And he saw the press more deeply and clearly than I think a lot of others uh, did. And he has a very penetrating critique, and it goes like this. He thinks that uh, in countries where the freedom of the press, that principle rules in politics, there follow uh, certain uh, key vices that can be understood. And they go like this. He thinks that the press will imitate the majesty of a court of law. It'll hold mock trials. It'll collect evidence. It'll pass judgment. It'll judge, sentence, and condemn individuals and institutions to infamy. And it does all of this at its own, uh, its own discretion. It picks and chooses its own causes. Now, it rules, it rules primarily by, uh, he says, receiving and promulgating accusations and that's a very interesting point that he develops. Unlike a court of law, however, uh, the press isn't limited by a jurisdiction. Uh, its jurisdiction is roving. It has a roving authority. Nor is it limited or restrained by precedent, like a court of law. Uh, and sometimes, Franklin says, it can imitate the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, he says that um, it can accuse you, and it will provide no grand juries to evaluate the truth of the accusation. Nor are your accusers sworn uh, to the truth. Instead, it can rely on anonymous sources. And if those sources fail, those people will never be held accountable. And it has such an over overwhelming power in this over the public mind that it can, I'm quoting here, uh, the proceedings of this court are sometimes also so rapid that an honest, good citizen may find himself suddenly and unexpectedly accused and in the same morning judged and condemned and sentence pronounced against him that he is a rogue and a villain. The press can't burn you at the stake, but it can intimidate you and compel you into belief, all while claiming that it's persuading your reason. Now, one might ask, why does the press have such powers? Why does the public allow itself to be abused in this way? 
Well, this is a place that Franklin goes that we today are not willing to go. And he says that this overwhelming power of the press finds a, quote, natural support in human resentment. So what does that mean? He says that uh, the reason that the press has so much power is because of the public's taste for destroying and humiliating others. Uh, The press he says, works on this aspect in human nature. He says, quote, those who, despairing to rise into distinction by their virtue, are happy if others can be depressed to a level with themselves. In other words, the press loves exposing private vices for the satisfaction of the public. It flatters the public by saying, look at these people. They're greedy. They're ruthless. They're immoral. You can look down on them while pretending that you're nothing like them. And today the press does this even with our president. The president says, you can turn, the press says, you can turn your nose down at our president. He's just insane or mentally unstable. And in this regard, the press has a kind of coterminous relationship with the public. Uh, on the one hand, the press wants to rule the public mind and often abuse it. And on the other hand, the public allows this because, it's, because of its desire to be flattered and for its jealousies to be satisfied, while being grateful to the press that they don't target them. Arthur, thank you so much. This is a very interesting topic. The panel was fantastic. Uh, If you'd like to see the whole event, you can find it on our website, heritage.org, under events. Arthur, thank you again. Thanks for having me. Well, it's it's a big week here in Washington, and it was a great discussion with Tim Chapman about the future of the conservative movement. There's there's the here and now, and then mm-hmm. there's the long term, and um, I, I think we covered both of them pretty well this week. I'm I, I'm spun off and interested in a lot of different things, and so uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, and that's a wrap for our show today. Thanks so much for listening in, everyone. Remember to subscribe to Mass Ave on iTunes so you never miss what's happening on the Hill and around the world. Check us out on Facebook at Mass Ave Podcasts, and remember to follow the Heritage Foundation to keep up with the latest conservative news, policy, and insight from the steps of Capitol Hill. See you all next week.